and there was a rabbi, Akiva, who had only five disciples, but was rumored to have thousands of people who followed him in the years following Jesus' return to heaven. And this, this right there gives us even a better understanding of why Peter and Paul and the other writers of the New Testament epistles are giving such stern warnings to the early church in order to maintain doctrinal purity. But back to our, our passage here, we see that Jesus has now adopted the method that was most conducive to the culture of that time. So he goes through whatever the schooling was, and there was three branches of schooling in order to become a rabbi, and it took many years, and it took a lot of sacrifice from the family, from the individual, and Jesus now has, as was customary, began, begun his ministry at the age of 30. And this is why in chapter 4 we've seen him go into the synagogue, open the word of God, and, and share with the people there. Because he has been accepted as a rabbi by the Jewish people at that time. There's so much more to understand this, you know, this relationship between a master and a disciple, a, a rabbi and his apprentice. But I think that just even this thousand-foot view can kind of give us a little bit more of an understanding going into what Jesus was calling these disciples, what these, these men to do with their lives going forward. And really, we're going to see in the rest of the book of Luke and as well as the other Gospels exactly what was happening with this relationship between Jesus and his followers. So let's go ahead and open and go to verse number one of Luke chapter five. Luke chapter five. As the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats beside the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He entered one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to thrust it out a little from the land. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus has entered the region of Galilee now after leaving Capernaum and he's now preaching to a large gathering again. Uh, he finds himself next to the lake of Gennesaret which we would better know as the Sea of Galilee. Now remember uh, Luke we, we know that he's writing this, uh, this book as a historical account. He's not actually here but he's getting these accounts from other disciples. So when you go to Matthew, when you go to Mark, when you go to John, you know, sometimes there's those who would try to cast doubt on uh, Scripture being authoritative and being consistent. And they would say, well, well, in this chapter, this is when this is happening. And in that chapter, and maybe the details are a little bit different. But the reality is, if you're reading the Gospels as one cohesive story, there's just a, so many blanks that can be filled in by what's going on here. And really, I love what's, what's so beautiful about Luke is that it kind of plugs in some of these details that otherwise some of the other writers would have skimmed over. We see that Jesus already has a relationship with Simon, who later becomes Peter at this point in time. And how did this come to be? Well, in John, we see that John the Baptist is a rabbi, and he's leading a large following of people in the wilderness and teaching uh, and proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. And Andrew is one of those disciples who is following him. So when Jesus comes and is baptized and the Spirit comes on him as a dove and that whole wonderful story that, we, that we've heard so many times, 
John goes ahead and says, now you need to follow the real master. Follow Jesus. And in John, we see that Andrew goes and gets his brother, Peter, Simon. Jesus, now in chapter 4, we heard that he was entertained by Simon's family and has already actually even healed Simon's mother-in-law. And so now he finds himself at the Sea of Galilee, right next to where Simon and Andrew have their boat docked. We see an intentionality behind the decisions that Jesus is making here. And we really shouldn't be surprised because, well, this is Jesus. He's God. He's the second part of the Trinity. From the foundations of the world, he's had this plan in place. And he's one with God. He's in unity with the Father and the Spirit. Uh, he's created all things. He knows all things. And now he's about to move forward his plan for spreading the gospel. Now, these crowds were so large that Jesus, whether it was for safety or for what's about to happen next, he goes to Simon, he asks for a favor. Take me out in your boat, go out into the shallows and let me sit down and preach to the crowds. And we're not really sure whether or not Peter was, you know, a willing participant in this right away. Maybe he felt a little bit of, you know, obligation because of what Jesus had done for his mother-in-law. But the reality is he did give back to God uh, what his, God asked of him in that moment. Little did Peter know at this moment that what God had given him, this boat, Jesus was going to require of him to use for a greater purpose. So in application for us, maybe there's something in our life that we're holding on to that God is ready to use for a greater purpose than we can imagine. Maybe it's a talent, a, a position, a possession, and really no matter what it is that we have, God gave it to us in the first place, and God is wanting to use each and every one of us for his glory, for his purpose. Maybe we don't have a boat like Peter did. Maybe we just have some loaves and some fishes, or maybe we have the widow's penny. But whatever it is, it is God, and he is wanting to use us if we're willing. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So Jesus finishes teaching the, the, the masses, and now he's turning his attention to a smaller audience. He's got two men, kind of a captive audience now that they're out in this boat, and he's asking them, hey, let's go ahead and go out a little further, and I want you to throw your nets down for a catch. Really, we see that Jesus, he would have known what was going on uh, with Peter and Andrew at this point in time because they were cleaning their nets on the shore already. And that's kind of a telltale sign that they had been out fishing already. But Jesus, anyway, knows that he's got something in plan. He's, he asks for Peter and Andrew to cast out anyway. And so Simon answers him very, very, um, very Peter-like uh, in verse number five. Simon answers him, Master, we have worked all night and have caught nothing. But at your word, I will let the net down. Now, this is a very, like I said, a very Peter response to, to Jesus in the moment. Um, Peter, a lot of us... Uh, throughout, throughout um, our following of Jesus, we, we're going to either um, 
find ourselves encouraged by his faults or discouraged a little bit by his boldness, right? He, Peter's just very, very, he is who he is. He's got no, he holds nothing back and he's not afraid to speak to Jesus very boldly in this moment. But ultimately, Peter submits himself to the authority of the rabbi Jesus. Now, whenever you or I are feeling a prompting from the Spirit, it's important to know that results aren't the goal. Obedience is. Obedience is submitting our will in favor of God's plan. In, in the garden before his crucifixion, Jesus prays to God the Father saying, it's not my will, but yours that should be done. Obedience is an act of faith. When we obey the people God has placed in our lives, we are placing ourselves in the hands of someone who most likely will not do things the way that we would do them ourselves. And really, th this can be an unsettling feeling for, I know, most of us, as maybe in the past, we've had a situation that we've gotten burned by. Or maybe, you know, we're obsessive compulsive. We have things that we want it done the way we want it, when we want it, you know. And it's very difficult. But it's important to understand that obedience is a posture of the heart. Regardless of the outcome, we are called to obey. Now, the amazing thing is that the difference between submitting to, to human authority and God's authority is that God always keeps his promises. A work done in faith will accomplish what God has intended, and it is an evidence of a true believer. James 2 discusses the connection between faith and works. A true believer does not rely on works for justification, but is willing to let justification through faith speak on his behalf by his actions. When we do what God calls us to do, when we follow and we put the effort into what God is calling us to do, it will show our allegiance to God. Um, I'm not going to, I'm going to butcher this quote. I told myself I was going to remember it and then I didn't write it down. So now I'm going to butcher it. But it's uh, Dallas Willard said that grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to, uh, grace is opposed to salvation. Grace doesn't allow us to be, grace allows us to be saved, but it does not allow us to stop working. Grace is, we have obedience to God at our, at our disposal. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And if we are to follow God, then we are to go ahead and put forth that effort and God will bless with the results. Maybe God has led you to a place in your life where you're questioning his purpose and his plan. Maybe you have done all you can and he's asking you to remain faithful, to keep casting your net. And sometimes it doesn't seem to make any sense. Jeremiah reminds us that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are above ours. When things don't make sense to us, we can tell him how we feel. We don't see Jesus rebuke Simon in this passage. Rather, we see him respond to Peter's obedient faith with supernatural results. Verse number six. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was tearing. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. 
Peter does what Jesus instructs him to do, and the result is amazing. They catch all these fish to the point that their nets are breaking, and they, they have to call out for help from their partners, James and John, in another boat to come over and to help them pull in this great amount of fish. And yet both of their boats begin to sink from the enormity of their catch. What a powerful reminder this is of God's limitless provision. The same waters that they fished all night the night before in, and they had caught nothing, produced the biggest catch that they had ever or would ever see. The only difference was Jesus. Throughout scripture, we constantly see God supernaturally intervene on behalf of his people. And when he gives a command, he is going to bestow the power that supplies the faith to obey the command that he's given us. He goes before and makes a way where no way exists. And here God blesses Peter for having faith and obeying what Jesus had commanded him to do. Now I want to take a little, a little side trail here and I want to I want to uh, take a moment and deconstruct this misconception about the blessings of obedience uh, to God. Uh, we see that Peter gets material blessings immediately. Um, whether or not that's for the purpose of Jesus giving him the faith that his family, as we know that Peter is the only recorded, he is the only recorded disciple of Jesus, you know, whether this was a a large amount of fish to pay all the debts, to get ahead on taxes, to, to make sure that there was food for his wife and his mother-in-law and whatever family else was living with him at the time. Um, whether that is the reason or whether it was just, that's just what God was going to do in that moment, we'll never know until, until we get to ask Peter ourselves. But the reality is there's a lot of people out in the Christian world today who would use obedience as a reason for not ever going through difficulty. That if you're facing difficult situations, that there must be sin in your life. There are others who would subscribe to the other extreme that God expects all those who follow him to be in a constant state of suffering. And that's not true either. So God is holy and God is just, and everything that we face in this life is by design. And because of this design, we are blessed. Psalm 128.1 says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his way. Now, this account of Peter and many of our favorite accounts where obedience is um, seen is usually followed by visible and tangible and quantifiable results of human labors. But if we looked at the idea of being, but if we, what if we looked at the idea of being blessed with a less materialistic lens? Now, we have the ability every every day to have a relationship with the God of the universe. He has afforded us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who is not just a form of God, but actually God himself living and abiding in us, who is interceding for us according to the will of God. What a gift we have. And it's all we really should want, and it's definitely all that we need. John Mark Comer in his book, Practicing the Way, says, so many Christians simply have no idea of the staggering immensity of God's love for them and of that love's power to transform them into people of love, as well as bring them great happiness and lasting peace. If they knew, they would undoubtedly do whatever it takes to make time to be with him. He also says that the reward for following Jesus is Jesus himself. 
So often we live in, we live day to day as if it's a transactional relationship with Jesus um, as we go throughout our life. That if I do as God asks, then he'll give me what I want. And the reality is you already have everything. I have everything that I should ever want or need in him. So not only was Peter impacted by this miracle, but we also see that Andrew and James and John are a part of this story. And they're, they're able to help Peter bring in this catch. Now, Peter's obedience was a catalyst in these men coming to follow Jesus as well. However, our obedience is blessed by God. Those around us are exposed to the goodness and the greatness of God. God uses us in his plan to reach the lost, to encourage the saints, and to teach those who are still just starting their journey following Christ. Verses 8 through 10, we see Peter's reaction to Jesus' provision. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Peter's reaction in this moment is one of absolute astonishment. It's also mixed with a little bit of fear, but ultimately it brings him into a, a posture of worship. He falls at the feet of Jesus and he tells Jesus to leave him because he's a sinful man, that he doesn't deserve what Jesus just did for him. Isaiah has the same response in Isaiah chapter 6, where after he sees the glory of the Lord, he, he says, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And what God does in that moment is he sends an angel to touch his mouth with a coal of fire and to purify his lips to do the purpose that he is calling Isaiah to. Jesus responds to Peter and tells him not to be afraid and that he is giving Peter a job to do. He's telling him, from now on, you will catch men. I think this is a really, a really neat, um, maybe, maybe I'm reading into it a little bit more than is there, but I just, I like to think of the fact that Jesus didn't ask Peter to do anything different than he was already doing at the moment. Peter was a fisherman, and now he's tasked with catching people rather than catching fish. The talents that he has, God gave them to him long before Peter was ever thought of by his parents, long before this story was about to come about, God from the foundations of time gave Peter his personality, gave him his talents, his gifts. And now Peter gets to use those talents and gifts, the things that he is good at, to bring people to himself. Now, if you're like me, there's times in my life where I have a better job that I think I would be good at. Um, maybe there's, maybe there's a, we're sprung on a, a task that someone asks us to accomplish for them. And you're like, I'm not very, you know, adequate at doing these things. But the reality is if you look back on your life, God has given you steps along the way to prepare you for where you are in that moment. In that moment, Peter maybe thinks of fishing as just an, a means to an end, but Jesus sees it as an ability to use him to grow his kingdom. 
Now, we should be like Peter. When we see the goodness and the greatness of God, we can't help but be confronted with our sinfulness and our unworthiness. Now, God is fully aware of our futility. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and our inability to do good of our own choosing is something that becomes more apparent the closer of a relationship we develop with God. Paul says this in Romans 7:18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So Paul, who we would all, you know, use as the, as the, the person that we would most want to uh, follow in the New Testament as a disciple of Jesus, here in Romans is stating that in and of himself, he is nothing, that he can't choose to please God. And the rest of chapter 7 details this inner struggle of Paul, which, if we're honest with ourselves, we deal with every single day. Our human condition is one of constantly desiring the opposite of what God is calling us to. Verse 24 of chapter 7 says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? What a relief to have this question answered for us in chapter 8, verse 2, where Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus' purpose on earth was to bring about this freedom from sin, to restore this relationship that mankind had caused in the garden and continues to live semi-intentionally against God. And now he's going about and he's calling these people, calling humans, these men to become his disciples. He's putting together a team to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Peter's instinctual reaction to the holiness of God was to push God away. And if we are honest, it's our nature as well. But Jesus' response is, come and I will make you who you can't be on your own. Come and be who I've made you to be. And closing in verse 11, we see the response to what Jesus has called them to do. Verse 11, so when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, yes, there are a lot of gaps in the timeline in Luke, but I think that in this verse, there's no gap. These, these men bring their boats to shore and immediately leave their old way of life, and they follow their master. This result of Jesus' calling was a total buy-in from Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They believed in this rabbi and abandoned everything to follow him to become his apprentices, to be thoroughly immersed in his teachings, and to do his will. Their lives would never be the same. As we close this morning, I want, I want to give us a few thoughts to reflect on. What is Jesus calling for us to leave behind? What are the weights and the sins that are causing us to shrug off God's call and to stay in our comfort zone? Are we content to keep living a transactional lifestyle with God rather than claiming Christ as our reward, who is worthy of all our devotion. Just as Jesus 
called these men to be his first disciples. He is calling each and every one of us to follow him this morning. What a, what a great picture this morning of following Jesus. Then there's no better picture in my mind than what we celebrated this morning through baptism. That step of obedience, following Jesus' call. Not being ashamed of who he is and definitely not being ashamed of who he has made us to be. Jesus has a purpose and a plan that we have been created for. Here in Luke 5, Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God to the masses, but he starts building his kingdom in that moment with these fishermen. He starts to call Peter by testing his willingness to submit to and to obey his word. He then creates an atmosphere for a decision by providing for his needs, revealing his holiness to them, and then calling for a response. Today, we have the same opportunity. Jesus is calling us to a relationship with him. He as our master, and we as his disciples. We are to be with him. We can become like him. We can do the things that he did. But we are unworthy and sinful. But he is righteous and forgiving. Now, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning, I, I believe that every time the word of God is opened, we, we're called to a crossroads. We're called to a time to grow closer to God. And no one's more needing of this than myself this morning. Uh, I know there's a lot, of, a lot of people who are more talented than I am, a lot more... Um, maybe knowledgeable in, in the word of God. But what I am so thankful for this morning is that I had the opportunity to study this deeply and it's really impacted my life. Maybe you are here and you know God and you've put your faith in him. He's calling you to, to draw closer to him, to follow him, to become more dedicated to hearing his voice and talking to him through scripture and prayer. Maybe he's asking you to, to continue to seek him, to obey him, and to be humbled and to be changed by him. Maybe you're here and you're struggling with surrendering your life to God for the first time. Today, Jesus is calling for you to come to him, to acknowledge your sin and, and that you're unable to save yourself. This morning, he is ready to begin a relationship with you. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer.